Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from Ruth chapter 1. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. This man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, we need you to meet with us this morning. I pray that as we discuss your word and discuss faith, that we would all hear the voice of Jesus himself. Jesus, would you invade our hearts with your grace and your mercy and change us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, as I said, we're finishing up a a series this morning called Help My Unbelief, and we've been looking at some kind of classic or common objections to the Christian faith. Um, And so we've had, you know, several different ones that have been from probably several different types of people, and hopefully, you know, one or two of those has kind of spoken to you in a clear way. Um, We've really done this series for a couple of reasons. Um, For those of you that are wrestling with Christianity from the outside— We've hoped that together we could kind of strip away some of the the deflections that are out there and and potential misperceptions of the Christian faith. And to be honest, our, our, our main hope in all of this is that Jesus has been able to speak loud and clear because we know that too often we end up cluttering up the message of his gospel. Uh, for those of you that are on the inside of Christianity, though, it's it's been our hope that through this series it would it would serve as a reminder that all of us struggle with doubt. All of us have crises of faith. And hopefully, this series has helped us to cement in our minds our need for one another, our need for community, and our need to keep wrestling and to keep engaging with God. This morning, we're going to talk about believing again. And to do that, I'd like to tell you two stories that have some similar themes, but at a surface level don't really seem to have hardly anything to do with each other. Um, And in telling these stories, I'd like us to see three things. I'd like us to see how blindness to the greater story that God is writing all around us can often lead to bitterness in rough circumstances. Blindness that leads to bitterness, that can even cause us to stop believing in the goodness of God or his existence altogether. But finally, the third thing that I'd like us to consider this morning is the beauty that is found in believing again when we're able to see the great story and our place in it. Blindness, bitterness, and beauty. Our first story this morning comes from our passage, and it's, it's of a woman named Naomi. Naomi is an Israelite living during the time of the judges, and in the timeline of Israel's history, this was a really, really weird spot. 
So kind of the defining moment of Israel's national history was when God came and released them from slavery in Egypt. And as a nation, he worked powerfully and brought them out of this powerful nation and into the land that he had promised to their forefather Abraham. And as God is leading them through the desert to this land, he gives, through their leader Moses, a book of teaching, a book of the law, so that the Israelites will not only remember what God has done for them, but then turn that into ethical living, how they should live in this land that God's given to them. Well, the people of Israel, if you've read any of those stories, uh, don't really do a stellar job. They go through some rather consistent periods of disbelief and rebellion. Even the people that saw all of the miracles that God had done to release them out of slavery. And so when the people finally enter the land that God promised to Abraham and their initial leadership dies off, this is when the time of the judges comes about. There's no real charismatic leader who steps up to kind of take the charge. And we're told throughout the entire book of Judges, time and time again, that every person did what was right in his or her own eyes. The law that God gave to his people through Moses was largely disregarded. The good of the community was disregarded. It was every man for himself. Everyone was setting up his or her own moral code to live by. And it made for a really chaotic time. Not exactly the golden age. And so what would inevitably, inevitably happen is the people would be so disunified and turn their backs on God so much that eventually a, na- a nation that lived nearby would come in and enslave them. And then they would remember God. They would cry out for his mercy. And he would rise up a leader, which is called a judge. And that judge would come and in the power of God, release God's people once again from slavery. And then once again, they would start doing what was right in their own eyes. They would fall into disarray. They would be ensnared by another neighboring nation. And then they would cry out to God, and he would raise up another judge. And that judge would come and free the people, and this would happen cycle after cycle after cycle. And this is Naomi's world. But We've only gotten through the first half of that first sentence to describe Naomi's world. The second half of that sentence tells us that there was a severe famine in the land. In a a culture that was based on subsistence farming, anytime the rains didn't come, not only did it it wreck the economic system that was in place, but suddenly there was no food to eat. People would start to starve and die off. Naomi's world was one of civil unrest, social upheaval, and economic hardship. The situation for Naomi and her family became so bleak that they decided to move out of the land into Moab. I think it's important for us to to take a moment to kind of consider the cultural implications of that because it's not like for one of us to move to Northern California as much as that might seem like an exile. Uh, it's not, that, that doesn't really capture what's happening. For an Israelite to leave the land, while, while we can understand it's an act of survival, there's no food to be found, it could be suggested that this was an act of disbelief. God seemed nowhere to be found. And all of the promises that he had made to his people seemed to be lost in an impenetrable fog. For an Israelite family to leave the land was one thing. But to move to Moab is altogether unacceptable. I've been trying to think of, an, of a cultural analogy that would work for us to, to, to get across the gravity of moving to Moab. Moab was this nation 
that as Israel was trying to come into the land, they constantly hindered God's people because of their hatred for God. This would be like if we were back in the 40s and you started to hear about everything the Nazi regime was doing and then things got tough here and we decided to move to Berlin under Hitler. That's what that's like. This was not an easy move for Naomi and her family. They're doing this because it seems like God is nowhere to be found. So Naomi and her husband Elimelech leave Bethlehem with their sons and move into enemy territory. The author, I think, here is trying to get across some irony. Naomi in Hebrew means pleasant. It's a reminder that life is good. But was it? Her husband's name, Eli Melech, means my God is king. But Naomi probably wondered, what sort of king is he? Is he a good one? Is he a silent one? Perhaps even a vindictive king? The name of their town, Bethlehem, means house of bread. But it had become a house of hunger. Unfortunately, that only gets us to the end of verse 2. In verses 3 through 5, Naomi's husband dies. Her sons marry foreign women from among her enemies. And then her sons both die. And in that culture, to be a widow was beyond precarious. But to be a widow without any children in a foreign land was like a death sentence. No protection, no provision. So here's Naomi's situation. Social upheaval, civil unrest, financial destruction. Let's add on to that mental, emotional, and spiritual anguish, a brokenheartedness and loneliness. Talk about a stressful situation. In my mind, it would have been really easy for Naomi to deny God's existence altogether. But she doesn't take the easy way out. She actually faces an even worse proposition. Perhaps God is against her. Perhaps he's not good. He's the bringer of calamity. She went out with the fullness of a husband and two sons and returned with nothing but a rather clingy daughter-in-law who served as a constant reminder of things lost of enemies, and the apparent enmity of God. And as the curtain closes, Naomi changes her name from pleasant to bitter because she tells the people around her that God has set his face against her. Our second story took place hundreds of years before Naomi was even born. In fact, it takes place before Israel was even a nation. Israel was a man whose original name was Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons. And he was an interesting father because he kind of grew up in a home of dysfunction, and he definitely passed that legacy on to his own family. He had multiple wives, and he struggled with favoritism. Obviously, children are pretty intuitive, and his sons picked up on that favoritism, which was pretty blatant. And the family dynamic was tense, to say the least. Joseph was Jacob's favorite child which, by the way, is a perfect reason to be hated by all of his brothers, right? And through a series of different events, as Joseph's uh, favoritism becomes very evident, his brothers become more and more enraged by their situation. And one day, as they're out grazing their flocks far away from home, and Joseph is sent to find them, they devise a plan that they're going to murder him and get rid of him altogether. 
As Joseph gets closer, a few of the brothers get weak stomachs. And maybe they're a little bit shrewder of businessmen than their other brothers. And so they suggest, hey, why should we kill this guy? Why don't we sell him and make a little money? As it happens, some foreign traders came by just then. The brothers capture Joseph. They sell him to the traders. Then he, they go on to fake his death and break the news to their father. This is not exactly a great day for Joseph. He soon finds himself in the land of Egypt, surrounded by a culture that he's completely unfamiliar with. And he's sold as a slave into the house of the captain of the guard, the man who's second in command under Pharaoh, a very, very important man in Pharaoh's court. And his name is Potiphar. But we're told by the narrator of this story that Joseph is given favor by the Lord. And he rises up to the top of Potiphar's household. He's the servant in charge of all the servants. And no sooner do things seem to be going reasonably well, and I say reasonably because let's remember, his own brothers were going to murder him and then decided to just be nice and sell him as a slave. So things are going reasonably well for Joseph because he is the head of the slaves, right, in a land that he doesn't know anyone in. But then they take a turn for the worse. Potiphar, his master, has a wife, and she's quite taken with Joseph, and she tries to seduce him. Joseph, being a man of character, does the right thing, refuses her advances in loyalty to his master, and what happens? She goes all fatal attraction on him, right? I mean, she goes completely nuts, and she tells her husband that Joseph tried to rape her. Like any self-respecting man, Potiphar throws Joseph in prison. The narrator tells us again that even in prison, the Lord was with Joseph. I can't be sure of this, but I'd like to point out that most likely, Joseph didn't have that narrator living inside of his head at the time. And in fact, he probably had a lot of time in prison to do some thinking. Because there was no gym, there was no cable TV, there was no three square a day. He's in a smelly, stinky, dangerous environment, and he probably has a lot of time to rehearse what happened to him in his mind. Where was God when Joseph's brothers wanted to kill him? Where was God when his brothers sold him to foreigners? And where was God when Joseph did the right thing? and spurned Potiphar's wife. And then he gets thrown into jail over it. And to be really honest, who cares that God's with him now? He's in prison, in a foreign land, far from home, and the final memory of his home is echoing in his mind, and it's the sound of his brothers counting out the money that he brought them as human traffic. They're wiping blood on his coat, to cover up their actions. And if you're Joseph and you still believe that God is real, how could you possibly believe that he's good? It's so easy for us to look back on these stories that seem to have their ends tied really nicely together and assume that experiencing them must have been just about as easy as reading about them. After all, we do see God showing up in huge ways, right? All sorts of miracles are taking place. Faith must have been easy. But the reality is that Joseph and Naomi are just like us. 
blind to the greater story going on around them. And as circumstances go from bad to worse, bitterness can easily set in. Somehow, miraculously, Joseph seems to have avoided this bitterness. And when we get to the end of the Joseph story, things actually end up pretty well. Joseph gets freed from prison. He interprets the dream of a pharaoh, the king of the land, that makes him second in command. Joseph becomes second in command in the entire nation. Not only that, but he, he tells Pharaoh that his dream is a dream of the future, when a famine is going to come upon the entire region. And so e- Egypt is able to stockpile food and not only have enough food for themselves to last through seven years of famine, but they're able to sell food to the surrounding nations, basically keeping the entire known world alive. And in doing so, Egypt becomes one of the major powers of the world at that time. As the story goes, eventually Joseph's brothers come to buy food from him. They don't recognize him at first. There's a series of really tense interchanges. And finally, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. I'm the one you sold into slavery. He has no bitterness. He wants no revenge. Eventually, Joseph's entire family moves down to Egypt. They're all saved from the famine because God sent him there ahead of them. And he has a reunion with his father and his brothers, and all of their wives and children. The circumstances end well. The same could be said for Naomi, by the way. She returns from Moab to her hometown of Bethlehem. The famine is over. She returns with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, and eventually, through a series of events, Ruth ends up marrying a wealthy relative of Naomi's named Boaz. And Ruth and Naomi are taken care of. Her circumstances improved drastically as well. But while improved circumstances may help remove bitterness, even though, let's be honest, there are often scars from the past that simply do not go away. The stories of Joseph and Naomi are, are not meant to teach us to just hold on, hoping that better circumstances will come down the road. That's not what they're there for. I'd like to point out that that family reunion that Joseph had down in Egypt when his entire family moves down and things seem like they're really great, that's how Israel became enslaved for over 400 years. So the circumstances just continue going on a roller coaster. So if we're hoping to get out of this, that we need to just hold on and grit our teeth and things will get better, that is not the point. There is something much greater going on here. It's the beauty of seeing the greater story being written through what are often horrible circumstances. If you've ever read that Joseph story from beginning to end, you'll remember that there's this really odd chapter stuck right in the middle. It's a story that has seemingly nothing to do with Joseph, nothing to do with Israel as a nation that's going to come about in in another hundred years or so. It's a story of Joseph's brother, his older brother named Judah, And it's a really bizarre story. We're told that Judah gets married, and he has three sons. The two are quite a bit older than the third one, and his oldest son marries a woman named Tamar, but then he dies without an heir. Now, in that culture, the the next oldest brother would marry his brother's wife to secure an heir for the family, so the family line could go on, and to support that widow. Again, a woman without a son or a husband was largely disregarded, and it was a very precarious situation. So, 
Judah's second oldest son marries his brother's widow, but he refuses to give her children, and he dies. So Judah says to Tamar, here's the deal. My youngest son is still pretty young. Why don't you go live with your dad until he's old enough for you to marry him? But what Judah's really thinking is, this woman's a black widow. She's killed off two of my sons. If I give her the third, she's going to kill him too, right? I can't, I can't have all three of my sons die. So in his mind, he's thinking, I'm not going to give her my youngest son. Tamar goes home and lives with her father. Several years go by. Judah never makes good on his promise. So Tamar comes up with this really just kind of icky, bizarre plan. She dresses up as a prostitute, and in those days the prostitutes would often wear a veil over their face. She finds out where her father-in-law Judah is going to be that day and goes to meet him. She seduces him, he sleeps with her, and she secures an heir for herself by becoming pregnant with twins. The firstborn of these twins, who would carry on the family line, was named Perez. And here's the point. If Perez's uncle Joseph hadn't been sold into slavery, he would never have been in Egypt. If Joseph had never been in Egypt, he would never have warned Pharaoh of the coming famine. And Joseph, Judah, Tamar, Perez, all of them would have died of starvation. In much the same way, if Naomi hadn't experienced famine and moved to Moab with her family, her, sons, her son would not have married Ruth, right? If Naomi's husband and sons hadn't died, then she and Ruth wouldn't have moved back to Bethlehem as widows. In which case, Ruth would never have married Boaz, the wealthy relative. I appreciate your patience with all of these seemingly unrelated stories. And you're probably wondering, okay, Steve, enough story time. What's the point? I'd like to read to you how the book of Ruth ends. And remember that Perez is Joseph's nephew who would have died of starvation. Keep that thought in your mind. Here's how the book of Ruth ends. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And the women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. And then there's this bizarre genealogy that ends it all. This, then, is the family line of Perez, Joseph's nephew. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. David was the great-grandfather of Jesus Christ. And as we enter the season of Advent, we celebrate the, God, the, the coming of God in the flesh. And this is how it happened. 
See, Naomi didn't just need a son-in-law to care for her in her old age. Perez didn't just need an uncle to give him food. They needed what we all need, a redeemer, someone to buy us out of the slavery that we have sold ourselves and our brothers into. We need the bread of life in the famine of our existence to satisfy us more than we could ever satisfy ourselves. We need someone who will be for us a true home as we wander through this life that is so often cold and clouded. We need faith to see that God doesn't just intrude on the story of this earth every once in a while, but he's been here all along. He's weaving a story through all of our heartache, all of our joys, all our dysfunction, all our sin, and all our death. It's all been reconciled in the birth of death, and resurrection of Christ. Now, you and I sit on this side of that birth, death, and resurrection. And this is what I want us to grab onto because most of the time, we're all blind to our circumstances and this world is full of trouble. We're so susceptible to bitterness and losing our faith in the goodness of God. So this is what I want us to do. In faith, With one hand, we reach backwards and grab hold of the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Christ. With the other hand, we reach forward, knowing that his resurrection is the first fruit of what is to come. We reach forward in faith with groanings that have no words to grasp onto a reality that when all things in the future will finally be reconciled fully in Christ. There's beauty in this story. And perhaps the most beautiful part is that we're invited to take part in it with all of our hurt and all of our blindness. As we close this morning, I'd like to offer a few suggestions on regaining faith in the goodness of God. If you're still struggling from the outside of Christianity and you're looking for evidence of of God's existence or at least his goodness, then I would invite you to try this. Experiment with him. Pray to him as if he's there. Read his word as if it really is his word. And continue wrestling with your questions. Wrestle them with me or with other leaders here. Wrestle them in a community group. Do it with others. Grab a hold of the one who became a slave for you, that you might be free. If you're struggling with faith in the goodness of God from inside Christianity, desperate to see how the pain in your own story could possibly fit into the great story, then I invite you to this table. This sacrament is where we grab hold with both hands, one hand in the present with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, one hand in the future pulling back that reality when he will come again, we will all be raised to newness of life and all things will be reconciled. I invite you to continue to wrestle with him in prayer. And also, do this in community. These types of questions are not meant to be asked in solitude. Grab hold of God's people, and in doing so, you will grab hold of God himself. There's beauty when we gather together around the story of Jesus and find in it the story of ourselves. Would you pray with me? Father, so often 
Our lives are full of toil and heartache. And we don't have the luxury of seeing the universal story that's being written all around us. And yet you have given us your word where we are able to read about people that experience the exact hurts and sorrows that we experience. And you're showing us how all of it points to you, how all of it points to Jesus entering in and taking on our sorrow. Would you give us faith to live lives of boldness? Give us faith to dispel our bitterness and see you for who you are, a God who is good, who loves us deeply. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.